All right, if you have a copy of God's Word with you today, please take your Bible and turn with me to John chapter number 11. John chapter number 11. Um, most all of us know that um, God doesn't have any problem changing our plans, does He? I think one of the reasons that God so often compares Himself to our Father is because sometimes we're like children that are trying to, to, to reason their way out of bedtime. And we go to God and say, all right, here's, here's the case. Here's the plan for what we need to do. And God patiently listens and says, I hear you, but here's what's going to happen. And so I, I'm a planner, uh, at least about my, my life as your pastor at church. I'm, I'm a planner and like to think about things um, ahead. And so I had, had planned out what I was going to preach to you today on Easter and where we're going for the next uh, several weeks and months. But I just felt like maybe God would have us take a little bit of a different direction. And so we're going to try and do that uh, today. And uh, Lord willing, next Sunday, uh, the truth is that as we look ahead to Easter, we always have to keep in mind that the empty tomb of Jesus is the central claim of the Christian faith. It is the, the very pulse of everything that we believe and everything that we do, all of our hopes, all of our ambitions, all of our lives are tied to the truth that God raised His Son, Jesus, from the dead, through the Spirit, on that first Easter Sunday morning. But Easter is not just a message we believe to be true. Easter is a message we need to be true. In a world of graveyards, and in a world of grief, in a world of guilt... We need to know that our God really gives eternal life. We really need to know that our God robs the grave and saves His people from death. Through His Son, who has been saved from death. And it just kind of has been heavy on my heart the past few weeks in our... In my heart in the past few weeks that in our church... There's almost an unprecedented sense of grief and loss that so many of you carry. I was looking back over a few things and, and did some simple math. And I have preached seven funerals for people in our congregation since Christmas. That is unreal. Uh, there have even been days when we would have church members that would be burying a loved one. And I could not be there because I was officiating a different funeral. And we live in a world of loss and of pain. Some of you are carrying that in a real way today. You're hurting. And you ought to be hurting. Because it is hard to say goodbye to those that we love. It is hard when death invades our family and takes from us somebody that has been such a big part of the story of our lives. And some of you now today are marked by that sadness. You're marked by an acute sense of loss. You're carrying the pain today, and you feel like my life is never going to be right again. My life is never going to be the same again. For some of you, that pain doesn't come from a recent loss, but it's a parent or a sibling or a spouse or a child decades ago. And you feel like you'll, your heart just won't heal from that. But it's not just the grief of death that we carry. Life hurts sometimes. Go through seasons in our families where there's drama and there's trauma and 
emotions and disruptions and people just can't get along and it weighs us down. Sometimes those things spill over even into legal fights and sometimes the judge doesn't give us the verdict that we look for. And then we carry guilt about how we've treated people. And then we carry burdens over the past that we can't quite resolve. And and our lives are marked up by fresh wounds and old scars. And all of us hurt. All of us grieve in different ways. We fight professional stress where it seems like sometimes the harder that we work, the bigger of a failure we feel like. And we just push through all this pain in life and we wonder, is this the whole story? Is my life nothing but the story of a series of losses? Is my life nothing but the story of a series of setbacks? Am I really nothing more than the scars that I carry and the losses I've taken and the pain that I have endured? Some of you are in that place right now trying to figure out what's happening in this chapter of your story. When the truth is that we are horrible interpreters of the story of our lives. We really have absolutely no idea what's going on. Really no idea. We think we do, but we have almost no clue what's happening. Imagine it like this. Imagine that in some way you became really good friends with somebody who lived just in the middle of nowhere like um, Papua New Guinea. Never seen a TV, knew nothing about American life or American culture, had never experienced modernization, and somehow you befriended this person And since we just had the Super Bowl, you told them, I want you to watch the Super Bowl with me. You come to my man cave, sit in my lazy boy, eat my nachos, and I'm going to explain to you this great American sport where these big monsters of men get out here and just waylay each other for three hours. You're going to love, and I'm going to, you're going to love it. I'm going to explain every bit of it to you. And so you get your, your tribesman from New Guinea, and you get him in the lazy boy, get him his nachos, and you're, you're going to show him football at the Super Bowl, the hot, the height of Western civilization. This is it. Broadcast in high definition. This is it. But then, right as those two teams get ready to kick off, the Wi-Fi goes out. Or your storm, or your satellite goes out, the cable cuts out, whatever. And you watch static. And then, right at halftime, it comes back. And this poor tribesman from New Guinea, he's forced to watch the halftime show at the Super Bowl. And he watches, this year it was, was Eminem and, and Snoop Dogg. Some of y'all that grew up as thugs here in Alabama, you, uh, you identified with that, man. You remembered. You remembered. And, and he watches all of these rappers. He watches Dr. Dre and he gets a sense of all of this pop culture. And then right as they kick off in the third quarter, Wi-Fi goes out again. Internet's down. And so all this guy sees of the Super Bowl is the halftime show. And then you ask him when it was over, what did you think about football? He's not going to have any understanding of zone defense. He has no idea what the special teams do. He doesn't know what the referee's for. He might not even know who the quarterback is. He's going to have no understanding of the big picture. Because he's only gotten a glimpse of one segment. And in our lives, we go through these moments of loss and grief and pain. And they're so real and so hurtful that all we see is this one moment right in front of us. And we don't see the bigger story that God is telling. And most of all, we don't see the bigger story that God is telling in Christ. 
as the one who robs the grave. And how our losses and our pain are part of this bigger story. So what I want us to do is I want us to look in this passage in John chapter number 11. Where Jesus actually encounters grief. He looks death in the eye. And he makes this incredibly bold claim. I am the resurrection and the life. He that liveth and believeth in me. Though he were dead, yet shall he live. And I want to show you how this moment redefines death, grief, pain, loss forever. By God's grace, I want to pull you out of this one scene that you're looking at right now. And I want to show you the whole ball game from start to finish with the resurrected Christ right at the center. So let's read John chapter 11. We're going to begin in verse number 1. We are going to read a huge chunk of this today, but it's great stuff. John chapter 11 verse 1 says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, He whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, this is where they try and tell Jesus all about their plans. Rabbi, um, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you were going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. It's good he's getting some rest. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin and said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes in me, lives and believes in me, shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. 
Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out, his hand and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord abideth forever. Now, when you study the gospel of John, a helpful way to understand John's approach to telling the life story of Jesus is to see how John works his way through Jesus' ministry by giving you the record of seven different miracles. Each of these miracles is a sign that points to the reality of who Christ is and what Christ has accomplished coming into the world as God's Son sent to save and to bear the sins of humanity. The first miracle that Jesus performs is in John chapter number 2 where Jesus at a wedding in Cana of Galilee turns water into wine. The last miracle that Jesus performs in John's gospel is this one in John chapter number 11, where he raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. And so there's something important that God wants to show us, I think, in that rhythm. Because Jesus' first miracle and his last miracle occur in the most ordinary and human of circumstances. What could be more human than going to a wedding? And what could be more human than going to a funeral? And here the Son of God at both places shows His power over creation, shows His commitment to bring joy and celebration into the world, and shows that He is the resurrection and the life who has come to take death into Himself to defeat it forever. So He comes here in John chapter number 11 as the one who is going to rob the grave. Now, you may already know this story in John chapter 11, but let me just recap it for you as Jesus comes as the grave robber. Well, Lazarus is Jesus' buddy. And Jesus is close to Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. Jesus had spent time in their home. And Lazarus is sick. And word comes to Jesus. Jesus, Lazarus is sick. And if you know much about Jesus from the message of the Bible, it's not really hard to understand what the presupposition is here, is it, right? Jesus, we know that you can heal the sick. Now your buddy is sick. Let's get on the road. Let's get going. Jesus doesn't go. 
until he arrives after Lazarus has been dead. And not just for a few minutes dead. It's not like Jesus got stuck in traffic and he was just too late. Lazarus has been dead for four days when Jesus arrives. And then his sisters come to him. Martha comes first. And she has a conversation with Jesus. And she tells him, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And in that conversation, Jesus makes what I think is the most central claim in this text. He says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives and believes in me, that person will not die. Even though that person's body dies, that person will have a life in me and from me that even death cannot touch and death cannot handle and the grave cannot extinguish. Martha, you believe this? She says, yes, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. To prove that claim, Jesus will go to Lazarus' grave and he will say, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who was dead heard and obeyed that command and walked out alive to prove that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. To prove that he is eternity itself, crash landed in our world of grief and graves and guilt. He is the one who robs the grave. But you know the end of the story. It ends with Lazarus leaving his own funeral. Jesus never came to a funeral he didn't ruin. And he resurrected Lazarus. And they leave. And if you read into John chapter 12, they have a big party to celebrate Lazarus' resurrection. And everybody's there hanging out, having a great time. Well, not everybody's having a great time, but they're there hanging out and celebrating this power. But if you, even though we know the end of the story, what you should see here is that the people in the story, they did not know how this would turn out. And so there's confusion. There's worry. There's angst. There's doubt deep in these people's heart. Jesus, we've asked for you to help. And you're not helping. Jesus, we've prayed. You're not answering. Jesus, we're grieving. And you don't seem to care. They're living as people who do not know the whole story. Today, what I want to show you as the, is that the one who robs the grave, he's the one who can tell you the whole story. He's the only one who can tell you the whole story of your loss and of your grief and of your pain. And he does it in two ways here in this passage of Scripture, I think. The first, Jesus tells us the whole story as he shows us his true goals. He shows his true goals. He hears that Lazarus is sick. They come to him and they say, Lord, Lazarus, your friend whom you love is sick. Let's do something about it. And you can see how they kind of put this pressure on Jesus, right? The Bible says that Jesus loved Lazarus. The Bible says that Jesus was Lazarus' friend. And people are saying these kind of things to Jesus because the understanding is that the closer you are to Jesus, the less likely you should be to experience any real discomfort in life. And we tend to believe that same thing, don't we? If Jesus is my friend... If Jesus really loves me, and if I really love him, then Jesus is going to keep me from any kind of real hurt. He owes that to me. That has to be what he really wants to do in my life, is to give me everything that I'm after and everything that I want. Never take anything from me that I love. Jesus is here, right? To keep me from hurting. Jesus, your friend is sick. The one you love, it's not looking good for him. Let's get to it. And Jesus says this in verse number 4. 
He says, this sickness is not unto death. But, he says, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified in it. Jesus says, maybe to the messengers that had come from Mary and Martha, maybe to his disciples who were present, Jesus says the end of the story for Lazarus is not death. That's not the end. Now, they thought that meant Lazarus would get better or Jesus would get there in time to heal him. But Jesus says the point is not death. The whole goal is my glory. The whole goal is that God here is setting something up for me to show my power, my authority, and the reality that I am going to create as the resurrected son of God. Now, you have to start understanding this in light of Jesus' goals. Because what's the goal of Lazarus? To not die. What's the goal of Mary and Martha? To keep Lazarus alive. What's the goal of the disciples who are part of this whole conversation? Their goal is basically to keep Jesus out of trouble so they can keep themselves out of trouble. And yet Jesus has a very different goal than everybody else involved in this story. And it creates real problems for the people here because they can't figure out where Jesus is and what he's doing. Why is he not answering? Why is he not coming quicker? Jesus healed absolute strangers in his life for no reason. Sometimes they didn't even ask for it. Sometimes Jesus healed people and he wasn't even there. He did it from a distance. Why is Jesus not healing their friend? Why is he not healing his friend? See the problem here? The problem here is a theological problem. Who is Jesus? What is he doing right now in our lives? And I would submit to you today that as acute as our emotional problems and losses may be, as real as our physical hurts may be, as difficult as any number of challenges we may carry in life may be, the real problems we struggle with are theological problems. As we try and sort out Who is Jesus? If he loves me, why is he not taking care of me? If he's really in control of this, why is he not fixing it? If he really answers me, why doesn't he answer me? All these people are trying to get through all of these kind of things, but Jesus, over all of it, says, this does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. And so I just want to come today to remind you as the people of God of something I'm sure you already know. And that is that in every moment of life, God is always after His glory. Jesus is always working for His glory in our lives. That's true on good days and it's true on hard days. It's true on the days when we welcome our children into this world and it's true on the day that we say goodbye to our spouse for the last time. It's true on the days when we get a new promotion and it's true on the days when our job is shipped overseas. It's true on the days when we wake up feeling good, having positive, happy thoughts. And it's true on the days when we can hardly get out of bed for the depression that may be weighing on our minds. God is always after His glory. And if He is the one, if God is the one who robs the grave, then He is the one who can take my loss and take my pain and take my grief and take my hurt and use it as the canvas by which He paints a picture of His glory that right now I simply cannot understand. There is nobody in John chapter number 11 that could ever understand that Jesus would walk up to Lazarus' grave and say, Lazarus, come out! And yet that's exactly what He's going to do. 
And where you are in your part of the story right now, you may not be able to see how God could ever weave together something for His glory. But if He can rob the grave, He can. If our God is a God who can bring glory to Himself out of His own grave, then He can bring glory to Himself out of your grief. And He can bring glory to Himself out of your loss. And He can bring glory to Himself out of your pain. What I'm telling you today is that in Jesus' hands, as the grave robber, death becomes resurrection. Out of Jesus' hands, loss becomes eternal life. Out of His hand, grief becomes glory. And weeping becomes praise. And He is able to take all of our losses. And He is able to make them into something great for His glory. And that if He is the God who robs the grave for Lazarus and on Easter. And thank God for us one day. If He is the God who robs the grave. Then He is the God who can take what the locusts have eaten away. And redeem it for something beautiful. He is the God who can give glory and beauty in the place of ashes. He can take all of the losses and replace it with greater gains if he is the God who robs the grave. Nobody could have imagined in John chapter 11 and verse number 4 that four or five days later Jesus would come to Lazarus' grave and say, Lazarus, come forth. And there's nobody in John chapter 11 and verse number 4 that could have ever understood that just over a week or so later God the Father would come to Jesus' own grave and he would say, son, come forth. But that's exactly where this story is going. And it's that story of Christ, the grave robber, that we have to read into the story of our pain right now. Because our pain does not determine the full purposes of God. And the story God is telling is never a story just about our hurts. But is a story for His glory. Now we want to know how, don't we? God, how can you take this grief and make it into glory? How can you take my loss and make it into my eternal good? How can you transform death into life? Well, candidly, I don't have the answer for you in your unique situation. Those are parts of the mind and the mystery of God that we just don't always know, usually until after the fact. Then we see what God has done. But if you see what Jesus says in John eleven four, and if you read what Jesus says to his disciples in verse 15, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. You see what Jesus is really after from us. He will glorify God and he will work faith in our hearts. That's what he's doing. Creating faith in people by doing the impossible. Jesus is going to create faith in the people that know him. By doing things that they simply believe cannot be done. Don't know if you know it or not, but dead people don't get back up. Unless, unless he really can rob the grave. Unless he really is the resurrection and the life. And then maybe, just maybe, God can bring glory to himself out of a grave. Friends, everything we believe today hinges on the truth and the claim that our God brings glory to himself out of his own grave. And so we believe by faith that God is able to bring glory out of the grave by doing the impossible. And you may be hurting right now and you may have to just take this from me on faith. But I pray you do take it on faith. That God is going to work in your life to bring you through things that you think you would never get through. And he will bring you through it because you are his. And he will not fail you. God will do the impossible in your life. 
He will. Because it's what he does. He will surprise you all so that you will see on the other side of this his glory. So that on the other side of it, you will know him to be more loving than you know him right now. So that on the other side of it, you will see that he has more power than you believe he has right now. So that you will see on the other side of it that his grace is more amazing than where it is to you right now. On the other side of it, he will glorify himself and he will increase your faith. And this is how God increases faith. Peter, who watched all of this go down in John chapter 11. Peter would write in 1 Peter chapter number 1 about how our faith is tried like gold. How Jesus will use circumstances and affliction and pain and grief and loss and every manner of suffering in life to burn away the impurities in our faith so that our faith is made stronger. Y'all, the only way that God will make our faith stronger is to put us in situations where we have no choice but to trust Him alone. That's what He does. And that's how He makes our faith stronger. And our faith is so weak. It's so weak. Why? Because we're so self-reliant. We rest in our own understanding. We trust our own abilities. Trust our own sense of how things ought to go. And yet God keeps putting us in these impossible situations where the pain is overwhelming, the loss is too great, the outcome is too unpredictable, so that we come to Him and we say, Lord, I can't do anything but trust You. And then, on the other side of it, we realize he really does have all wisdom. And he really does have all power. And his grace really did carry me through. And he really does love me. And he really is taking care of me. Jesus tips his hand here and he says, I'm after my glory. I'm after my glory. And he will glorify himself in you. And so today, rest in that. And know that that purpose will not fail. And that it will be accomplished. Jesus shows his true goals. But I also want to show you the second way in this passage of Scripture. Where Jesus reveals to us the true story of our pain and suffering. And that's where Jesus shares our deepest grief. He shares our true hurts. Jesus comes finally to Bethany where Lazarus lived and had died. And he's met there by Martha in verse number 17. She comes to him and the question she has is, if you would have been here, Lazarus would not have died. He talks with her. He tells her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He that lives and believes in me, though he may die, he will live. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Then Jesus goes to the other sister, Mary. Mary comes to Jesus and she says much the same thing. If you would have been here, Lazarus would not have died. And I wonder, I wonder what the tone was in that. Is that a confession of faith in Jesus' power to heal the sick? But an expression of a limited faith that didn't believe Jesus could raise the dead? If you would have been here, he wouldn't have died, but oh well. Or is it an accusation? If you would have been here when we called for you, we would not be weeping at our brother's grave. I don't know, but I know they're humans. And I sense in this text disappointment in Jesus. 
But Mary's interactions with Jesus in particular is captivating. Not just because of her and her expressions of pain, but because of Jesus' expressions of pain. The Bible says this in verse number 32. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. Then the next verse, 33, says that she was weeping. So, if, if I can do this with you for a moment, if it makes sense to you the way it makes sense to me, forget you're reading this in the Bible. Because we, we kind of put this in the language of the Bible and, and we don't see this for what it is. This is a woman who has fallen on the ground weeping. She's not composed. She's lost control of her emotions. She's exhausted. She's worn down. She's confused. She's hurt. And she collapses at Jesus' feet in a puddle of tears. She is a sobbing wreck at Jesus' feet. And we may look at that and say, well, she's being too emotional. She needs to get herself together. Jesus didn't say that to her. But I want to say to you today... That if you walk through that kind of grief, the best thing you can do with it is bring it to Jesus. Jesus, who was not afraid of your sins, is not afraid of your tears. And and we should commend Mary for weeping her way to Jesus and sobbing her way to Him. And seemingly saying, Lord, I don't understand. But for all of my misunderstandings, I'm going to be confused with Jesus. And I'm going to be hurt with Jesus. And I'm going to cry with Jesus. Folks, your grief will either push you away from Him or bring you to Him. And for Mary, she says, I'm going to let it bring me to him. This is real human pain and real human loss. But then, there in verse number 35, like a lightning bolt out of the sky, the shortest verse in all the Bible, it should shock you. And it should propel you to investigate what is happening here. When it just says in two simple words, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Now, There's all sorts of investigation into this. Why did Jesus weep? Jesus weeps because he's angry at death and he's angry at what death has done to people he loved. Some of us have been so mad before that you cry. You ever had that happen to you? Maybe it's that kind of situation. Why is Jesus weeping here? He's at his friend's funeral and people that he loves are hurting. And so Jesus weeps. Carefully notice this. The Bible does not say Jesus cried. There's something different between crying and weeping. He's weeping. His humanity is broken as he takes Mary and Martha's pain into his own person and he weeps with them. The God of heaven who can and will Rob the grave still hurts with his people when they hurt. Jesus wept. Perfect God and perfect man wept. The one who measures the water in the hollow of his hand wept. The one who stretches out the span of his hand and measures all the stars in the sky, he sobbed. The one who made a way for the Jews through the Red Sea. He breaks down with his people. This is your God crying with you. And so let me encourage you today, through all of your tears, do not lose sight of the God who weeps with his people. 
Do not lose sight of the God who carries our sin and who carries our pain. So think, think about this. When we go to funerals, we don't know what to say or do, do we? We know we have to tell somebody, I'm sorry for your loss, or I've been praying for you, or they're in a better place. Well, we really don't know what to say, do we? We don't know what to do. And, and there, there's nothing you can say. People don't, need, people don't need some pithy word of encouragement. They need your presence. But notice this. When Jesus comes to a funeral, which is what he's doing here, when Jesus is at a funeral with people that are grieving and hurting, Jesus doesn't just come and say, hey, have a little more faith. It's going to get better. Jesus does not just come and say, it's going to be okay. Jesus does not just come and offer some fortune cookie piece of advice ripped out of a daily bread devotional. Jesus comes and he offers his tears. Jesus comes and he presents himself. And he says, right here, in the middle of all your pain, this is where the incarnate Son of God in flesh in the world is. Where does God come when God comes into the world? Church, he goes to a funeral. And he goes to the hurting. And he goes to the dying. And he goes to the suffering. And he goes to the people that do not have the answers. And they do not know how the story will turn out. And they feel like they can't hold up under the burden. And he goes to the woman who is a sobbing mess at his feet. And he weeps with her. And I know that may be difficult for us to understand how the high and transcendent holy God of heaven could ever stand here and weep. But folks, I just want you to hear me today. That if our God... If our God was not pushed away when all we had to offer him was a sinful heart, he is not pushed away when all we have to offer him is a broken heart. If our God was not put away by the fact that we needed him in our sin, he is not turned back because we need him in our pain. If our God has the God, has the power to empty the grave, he is a God who is not afraid to hurt with us. Because he's bigger than all this hurt. And he's bigger than all this pain. And the God who is a grave robber. The God who would stand and say, Lazarus, come forth. He did that with tears in his eyes. Because he has power over the grave. And he has compassion on his people. Perfectly combined in the new reality that is present in the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am life itself. I am the God who robs the grave. And I weep with those that are broken. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he weeps, but then he robs the grave. He steps forward to Lazarus' grave. And he causes Lazarus to step out of his grave. The one who had died heard the word of God speak the word of life. John says in John chapter number 1, In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the same God who stepped into nothing in Genesis chapter number 1 and spoke this world and all life into existence. That God stepped up to Lazarus' grave. And the Word said, Lazarus, live. And Lazarus said, okay. And he came forth in newness of life. And everybody lived happily ever after. And so, their questions in verse number 4. That was not the whole story. The breakdown of Mary, she weeps. That's not the whole story. Listen carefully. Lazarus' resurrection, that is not the end of the story. This is all just designed to point to the real story. And the real story is 
that a week or so later, the Christ who is present with His people in their pain, the Christ who stood at the grave of His friend and wept, the Christ who robbed the grave, that Savior was betrayed by one of the men who watched this. This man who attended the funeral of a friend, he had these same friends come to his execution. And they watched, they watched as Jesus was spat upon by his enemies. And they watched by this, as this weeping Savior had nails driven through his hands and was hoisted on a Roman cross. And they watched as the Roman governor Pontius Pilate put the sign over his head that said, This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And they watched for six hours on a hillside, just a few miles from where all of this happened, where he struggled for every breath, pulling himself up on the nails in his wrists. (gasps) And they heard Jesus pray to his father on the cross. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. And they watched this Savior who had robbed the grave go to his own grave, praying the Psalms. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they watched this man who had wept with them in their pain take all the pain and all the sin and all the death of the world into his own person. And they watched this man who wept with them beg for water because he was thirsty. And they heard this man in the end With the last ounce of strength he had in his physical body body, cry out. It is finished. And they watched his body go limp. And they watched his mouth silence. The mouth that had emptied the grave. They watched that mouth silence. And the eyes that had wept with them. They watched them go cold and dark. But that isn't the end of the story either. Because three days after he died on that cross, as these people grieved and wept over him, the Spirit of God called him forth out of his own grave. And he came out saying to us, I am the resurrection and the life. And he that liveth and believeth in me, though he were dead, just as I was dead, yet shall he live as I live. And he would say to John in Revelation, I am he that liveth and was dead, and I am alive forevermore. Why? Because our God is a God who robs the grave. And the story of your loss, and the story of your grief, and the story of your tears, and the story of your pain, that is all swallowed up in the resurrected life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the story is not just about how much you hurt. The story is not just about the burden you carry. But the story is about a God who robs the grave and defeats death forever on behalf of His people. And that That story, the story of John 20, the story of his resurrection, that changes the story of his cross forever. And the story of John 20, it changes the story of John 11 forever. And the story of John 20, it changes your story forever. Forever. Because he is a grave robber. Even if it seems like he's not answering your prayers, he is the resurrection and the life. Even if it doesn't make any sense to you in the moment, where is he when I need him most? He's probably there weeping with you. 
And He is the one who empties the grave. When it's your turn to be diagnosed with cancer, He is the grave robber. When you have to go sit in the conference room with the funeral director, He is the grave robber. When your family is in shambles and you are getting the phone call from prison, He is the grave robber, the resurrection and the life. The one who looked grief in the eye and said, I am the resurrection and the life. A few weeks later, He looked death itself in the eye and said, I am the resurrection and the life. So that He could look to you and say, I I am the resurrection and the life. And if you believe in me, you'll never be lost to your death. You'll never be lost to your tears. You'll never be lost to your grief. But you will be alive in Him as He is alive in God, perfectly and forever. Let's stand together today as we prepare ourselves for an invitation. And as we get ready to sing today. I would like to have every head bowed and every eye closed if we could now. And in the stillness of a moment while Gary and Shanda maybe just play a few notes behind us softly. I want you to meditate on this text. Think about Mary and Martha. Their loss, their grief. Many of you have been in their shoes over the past few months. Others of you feel like you're walking that path with them now. And what I want to do is I just want to pray for you today. That God would make it real to you that He is the one who robs the grave. And I would ask you today, if you're in that place wondering, where is Jesus now that I really need Him? Would you put your hand up? If you're in that place where you're thinking, why is He not answering me? Would you put your hand up? you just need to know He weeps with you, would you put your hand up? If you say, I just need to know He's the one who robs the grave. Would you put your hand up? Lord, you did not cheat death, you beat death. You conquered it and defeated it forever. So God, we will never be lost. We will never be lost. But our good shepherd holds us in the palm of His hand and nothing will pluck us out. God, I pray you would make that real to your people from your word, through your spirit. Do it, God, in a way that I can't, but you can. God, I pray you would let them to hope in Christ who is the resurrection and who is life itself. Make this truth real to us in all of our grieving and all of our living, all of our weeping and all of our dying. Help us to cling to this Jesus. This is our God who robs the grave. Help us to believe. Help your people to believe. Increase our faith. Show your glory. I pray it for Christ's sake. For their sake.